This morning's reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on heaven, sorry, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. Good morning. Well, the occasion for writing this letter that we've been going through, letter to the Colossians, is a deception that had creeped into the church to slowly begin to expand and affect people's lives. And this first degree of deception that we see in the Colossian church was people started to equate some good or plausible advice from a pretty good source with the good news from the source. They started to make those two things kind of equal, kind of the same. And what happens is when we adopt these little bits of half-truths, these little semi-spiritual sayings and Facebook platitudes, and they start to affect then what we value, what we prioritize, and ultimately how we live our lives. Now, even if you believe this and you recognize the ultimate emptiness of these kinds of advice from this kind of source, there still remains one slight problem, and that's this, that we love duct tape. Especially where I'm sort of originally from, the United States, I don't know if this is true in other countries, I probably should ask, but duct tape has always been, uh, for as long as I can remember, the quickest fix to any structural problem I've had to deal with in my life, and Actually, about this time last year, I read the story recently, an Alaskan man who unwisely left his fishing bait, his fresh fishing bait, in his plane. Uh, the plane was then mauled by a bear, as we'll see in this picture here. And yes, <laughs> he was fine, and he had another pilot bring with him three cases of duct tape. Three cases of duct tape. And here was the result. Yes, <laughs> True enough. Yes, I know. That is the power of duct tape. (laughs) Three. But when we know that something is broken, we look for, what do we do? We look for the most immediate, the most accessible, the most practical fix. When it comes to spirituality, contentment, inner satisfaction, living for something bigger than themselves, the solution is similar. It's whatever works. Or to really be more specific, Whatever works fast. Or whatever works the quickest, the fastest, and easily digestible bite-sized bits. That's what we like. I recall a well-known pastor at a conference I attended once saying that, which jolted me, saying, the quick-fix pragmatism of our age is a tenet more dangerous than the worst heresy of our day. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was widely regarded as the greatest preacher of the 19th century, British man, often said that the greatest failures in the Christian life 
came from those who, quote, decried doctrine and boasted that they were practical men. Now, why is there such danger with this? I mean, we all agree we like duct tape. We like quick fixes. Why such danger with whatever works fast? Pragmatism. Well, number one, it's a quick but low-calorie meal. Right? There is an end to its satisfaction before we need another bite-sized bit. We've solved one problem, but then another pops up. Whether it's a hobby, a person, a drink, a stretch, a look, a reputation, or a job, eventually the satisfaction runs out to any ungodly obsession. Whatever it might be, it'll run out. And you'll go back to it for more and for more in a more extreme way, in a more extreme way, until it doesn't satisfy ever again. Number two... It's dangerous, whatever works fast is dangerous because it produces neither love nor faithfulness. Do fruits of the Spirit. If it doesn't work, we throw it out. We kick it to the curb. There's no attachment, there's no love, there's no concern. This happens even with Jesus. That same Jesus we all came here for, at least knew when we came to church, we'd hear about. I remember hearing someone sharing a testimony recently and he gave one of the most apt descriptions of many people's relationship with Jesus, and it was his before he came to know Christ. He called Jesus a spare tire in his life before really coming to trust him, that he is useful in a tight spot. Right? You pull him out, you use him, once you're done, you put him away, remembering you can always pull him out again. This third thing, why this can be so dangerous, pragmatism can't ultimately defeat the problem of me. Diets can help you feel better or lose weight. Uh, yoga can help you relax. Pouring into your work may help you feel better about yourself and your confidence in life. And we say, hey man, whatever works. That works for you. But none of these things work to defeat sin, to defeat pride, to defeat selfishness. They may temporarily help you chase away pain. They're like a little aspirin. Something else will always crop up. You know what I mean? You get rid of one thing, something else always crops up because sin can only be defeated by one source. One source. And I don't mean here, guys, that we don't ultimately want to be pragmatic, but we too quickly start there. We too quickly go for the big fix. So Paul offers a different antidote, or at least a starting point to this. He starts with beliefs. He says the most important thing to focus on first is beliefs. So you begin with learning Christ. And that fosters convictions that cause you then to prioritize Christ. He moves up in the queue. Cause you to prioritize Christ, which cause you then, then you live a life that glorifies Him. We've been looking through Colossians 1, 15-20, a great, this great little hymn. Last week I preached on one verse in my effort to still be preaching on Colossians when Jesus returns. Alright, so uh, we're going to keep going this morning and continue to learn the source, Jesus. Alright, let's do this. Strap it on, get into the ring, get to work. Starting in verse 16 and 17, because we read and studied verse 15 last week. For by Him, meaning by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold 
together. And what we see here is we begin to discover Christ in these details. So a lot of little words here. We discover Christ in the details. Now, let me start here, though. When our faith is challenged by others or just through life, what do we try to do? We try our best to address that question or that problem. But usually what ends up happening is we address an easier question. Let me explain. I've, I've told you I've been reading a couple books about uh, the brain lately. I'm trying to understand my own brain. It's kind of crazy. But uh, in, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman argues that intuition, the intuitive kind of thinking... You know what I'm talking about? We always talk about someone's intuition. A mother's intuition. Uh, and frankly, I, it's one of those things that uh, whenever I take those scores, those Myers-Briggs tests, I always score high on intuition. But, uh, we'll see if that's true. He argues that intuition or that idea usually only half succeeds in providing solutions to questions. He gives this great example. Many moons ago, this guy, uh, Daniel Kahneman, visited a chief investment officer of a large financial firm who recently invested tens of millions of dollars in the Ford Motor Company, in the stock of Ford. This was years ago. But when he was pressed as to how he ultimately made this decision, he said, well, I, you know, I recently attended an auto show, got to know a little bit about the Ford cars, and walked away thinking, boy, Ford knows how to make a car. Now, the question the executive should have faced was, should I invest in Ford stock? Is it at a good value now? Will it be at a good value? Where does it project to be? And that's a difficult question, but what he ultimately determined his choice was an easier and related question, which was, do I like Ford cars? That makes sense? He didn't know how to answer those other questions. So he said, well, do I like Ford cars? And he used this example to basically state that when we don't put in the hard work to learn, our mind reverts to a slow form of thinking. We answer a related but different and easier question thinking we answered the harder one. You know what I'm saying? Anyone ever do this? If someone asks you a hard question and you just, well, that's true, but as I read in USA Today, or as I read and saw on the BBC, and you answer a different question. I do this frequently, okay? Uh, and don't you think that's true when it comes to spiritual questions as well? If someone asks, who is Jesus, and start from the beginning, we say things like, well, oh, he's, he's the Savior of the world. He, he died for sins. That's who he is. And what are we doing there? We're really answering, in many ways, an easier question. And thankfully, the Bible forces us firsthand to cataclysmically explode our view of Jesus and ask a bigger question. Bigger questions. So for instance, when we simply want to answer who created me, we look at Colossians and we're forced to confront, explain to me how everything created can be traced back to Jesus. And we see that in verse 16. By him and through him all things are created. So instead of answering the question, why did God create me? In Colossians we get, for what purpose does each created thing serve Christ? Because in verse 16, it says everything is for him. For his glory. When we wish to answer the question, when was Jesus born? Instead, we get, when does Jesus begin to show up in the eternal plan? Right? Verse 17, he's before all things. 
And finally, instead of addressing, how can Jesus help me? We're forced by looking at the Bible to answer, what are the, the multiple parts of a rapidly decaying universe that Jesus holds together? Verse 17 says, in him, all things hold together. All things. So these little, these little detailed prepositions, remember English class, prepositions? Uh, no, hopefully you do. Uh, they stretch our minds and they unfold a grander picture of the master of the universe. So that's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look through each one of them. First, verse 16. Everything is created by him and through him. So the question, explain how everything created can be traced back to Jesus. Assuming an all-knowing deity, if you assume that, we can make a pretty easy case for bread, things like gasoline, things like wedding rings, because man can't make with his own hands wheat, oil, and diamonds. Right? From whence these come. God must supply the sunlight, the sludge, and South Africa. Right? It's got to come from Him. But what about things like works of art? What about inventions? What about like entrepreneurial genius? And we see here, you know, the things people create where we go, ah, I wish I would have thought of that. Like, like the Snuggie. We all agree. You know, we are reminded from Genesis 1.27 that we are all created to create. That God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of the Trinity. God, the Father, God, the Son, the God, the Holy Spirit. Let us make him in our image. Image of the Creator. And so we were all created then to create. We were all made in God's image. So unlike animals, we reflect the chief qualities of God in a lesser degree. So in one sense, his omnipotence, his the ability to move things and have a certain amount of power we have in a lesser degree. Omniscience, knowing God knows everything. We know some things, lesser degree. God is all wise, but he's given us wisdom to reason, to think ahead in a lesser degree. And it's true of creating. We can do this because we're made in God's image in lesser degree. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, uh, he called each human being a sub-creator. We're the sub-creator because we're all like mini-creators under the Creator. And as such, ultimately it's a quality that must be attributed to God. So it can be traced back to Christ. You see that? Then you might ask the question, well, well, surely we know God didn't create fireworks, you know, ballistic missiles, the atom splitter. You just pop those things out. Not directly, but He gives human beings, the brain, the ingenuity, and the perseverance to do so. He actually says in Deuteronomy 8.18, the author of Deuteronomy says, Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. To produce, so that He confirms His covenant. God gives you that ability to produce anything. So we trace back to Him. Everything can be traced back to the resources provided solely by and through Jesus Christ. So by Him and through Him, but also for Him. It's our next preposition. For what purpose does each created thing serve Christ? We look at our world, we think there are a lot of things that don't seem to serve Christ. If look a little more deeply. Think about the Cayman Islands government, health authorities, police, financial regulators, teachers, parents, pastors. 
each of these entities are for Christ in that they are called to reflect his rule. They are called to do so, reflect his rule. And to some extent they do, even ones that are corrupt. When we look at them, we are meant to see the king of kings and his rule in our world. In fact, when each of these sort of authorities pass through Christ when created, it's as if they picked up a little bit of Jesus on the way. Right? They were kind of filtered through Christ because everything came through Christ and they picked up a little bit of Jesus. It's reflected in their rule and authority. And think about it, in our lives, we absolutely depend on these authorities. You know, uh, we depend on Jesus being in these authorities because we can't function without some level of faith in them. And we all have some level of faith that police will come to a scene of an accident or a crime. We have some level of faith that the fire department will come to a fire, that when we release, doctors release a child from the hospital, a parent will parent. We have to have some level of faith or things can't function. Because Jesus has put of himself in there. They're called to reflect the King of Kings. All things are for him, and then in him all things hold together. Verse 17. What are the multiple parts of a rapidly decaying universe that Jesus holds together? That's a long sentence, I know, but think about it. Universe is decaying, things are going just, we think nuts around us. Anyone had a week like that? You think things are crazy. My year is crazy. My life is just insane. And, and, and then I look at the world around us and it's just even crazier. But through that still, a number of us have personal testimonies, right? Personal lives, marriages, families that hold together despite dysfunction. Multiple layers of dysfunction. But thinking a little bit bigger picture, the social fabric, despite worries in our history of, of communism, nihilism, anarchy, um, and movies that depict these things. More people still say hello than give us the middle finger. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, people still say hi. Because Jesus holds even the social fabric of the world we live in together. Societal justice. Most of the world still laws a Judeo-Christian ethic based on individual rights. Monetary systems. Think how... Monetary systems are held together. How else? By, by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I talked to many of you guys who are far smarter than I am on this topic. Uh, those of you who have investigated are amazed at how money has historically been created, distributed, allocated, restricted, often with egregious deceit and wrongdoing. Right? And yet, people still work, they still produce, they still eat, and they still live. Consider also our world. The slant of the earth is tilted at an angle of 23 degrees and produces seasons as a result. Scientists tell us that if the earth had not been tilted exactly as it is to the tenth of the degree, vapors from oceans would move both north and south, piling up continents worth of ice. Which is great for my Canadian hockey playing friends. They're like, sweet! I wish there was more ice. Until you realize you can't live in the ice. It's a problem. Unless you want to be cryogenically frozen for later. But... Who knows if that really works? So, Jesus holds all things together. Finally, last preposition here, before all things. Verse 17, when does Jesus begin to show up in the eternal plan before all things? 
That's the answer. He's before all things. That's when he shows up. When we have God the Father who creates and establishes himself as the head of the Trinity, we have the Spirit who is the invisible worker among mankind. We have the Son who exists, who has existed, to create a destiny for man and then to save him from it. And we actually see both events in this passage. Now here's where it gets pretty cool. Strap in. We're going on a ride here. Now when I instruct folks how to study the Bible, one thing I mentioned is to look for repeated themes, repeated words, and circle them. All right? Because Jesus wants you to write in your Bible. All right? You can do it. You can do it. It's not, it's not wrong. Uh, circle them. All right? And here's what we're going to do in this passage. This passage, two pairs of related words that we see here that are very important. First, we see before, right? And before all things in verse 17. But then as you look down in verse 18, you see beginning. As in, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Synonyms here. Purposeful synonyms. He's before all things. He is the beginning. And so you see, this is my, uh, the real Bible, actually, I'm preaching from right now. I circled them for beginning. And you connect them with a dot or a line, whatever. So the former has to do with Jesus' cosmic priority. He is before everything. The universe, his beforeness compared to everything created. The latter has to do with his redemptive priority. His redemptive beforeness that through the cross, he might receive greater glory than through creation alone. He was the beginning. And then, here's the great thing. He gave mankind a new beginning. That's what's kind of going on here. You have the beginning. He is before all things. And then we talk about salvation and Jesus dying on the cross because he gave us a new beginning. Through the cross, he might receive greater glory. He gave man a new beginning and he calls them the church. Those who trusted him who is the beginning. So hold that there. And then we have a second pair of related words. In this case, they are repeated verbatim. They are the firstborn. Verse 15 We see this, he is the firstborn over everything. And then verse 18, you see, he is the firstborn from the dead. Circle, connect. All right, so, last week we went into this into great detail. I won't do that today, this word, uh, prototokos, firstborn. But the idea in the New Testament of firstborn is he is the inheritor and executor of all the dad's property. That's the way this was used. So in in Jesus' case, he's the inheritor and executor of all the Father's property. Jesus is as the firstborn. Now, in this passage, the former has to do with Jesus being in charge of the entire universe, the whole cosmos. And the latter, if you're following along, you can probably guess, has to do with being in charge of redemption. Redemption from the dead, from which all people need to be rescued. Now think about this. Property. Put yourself in, in Jesus' shoes if you, <laughs> as best you can. Uh, of all the property be avoided. Of all the property be avoided, sold, left untouched as wasteland, the realm of death would be at the top of the list. Right? If you had a selection of property as Lord of the universe, who wants death? Right? You top, the best place, at the top of the best places, you've got Hawaii, maybe some little nook in the Swiss Alps. And then you have death, right above which is New Jersey. All right, but then death. I mean, no, one wants, no one wants death. 
But Jesus, who has charge of the stars, the planets, the cattle on a thousand hills, takes charge of death, and specifically hell. He's the firstborn. And and he does so by making peace the blood of the cross, as it says in verse 20. So here we have a God in Christ who was before all things, and then we wrecked and tainted the all things created by, through, and for him. And so he literally began again. He was gracious enough to say, I will begin again, but this time with a cost. His blood. In becoming the firstborn from the dead, he takes charge of all the property of death. Decay, sickness, bitterness, weariness, sadness, and finally, complete and utter separation from him who is life. He takes charge of this. He endures death's great sting. He defeats it, rises from the dead, and so passes on those property rights to us. All of a sudden, we become the heirs. Because he was willing to take charge of death and endure it, endure hell for our sakes. And he passes on the property rights to us as sons of the living God. And what a plan! I mean, what a cool plan. I mean, I, now bookmark this reality here for a moment. Just the amazingness of this plan. We're going to come back to it. After a publication of his book, The God Delusion, the outspoken atheist, Oxford professor Richard Dawkins, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Anyways, Richard Dawkins sat down to debate the idea of God and science with Francis Collins, a Christian scientist, leader of the Human Genome Project. And at the end of the debate, Dawkins concluded this. He said, my mind is not closed to the idea of God, as you have occasionally suggested, Francis. My mind is open to the most wonderful range of future possibilities, which I cannot even dream about, nor can you, nor can anyone else. What I am skeptical about is the idea that whatever wonderful revelation does come up in the science of the future, it will, turn out to be one of the particular, it will not turn out to be the particular historical religions that people happen to have dreamed up. He's skeptical about that being reality. When we started out, we were talking about the origins of the universe and the physical constants. I provided what I thought were cogent arguments against a supernatural intelligent designer. But it does seem to me to be a worthy idea, an intelligent designer. Refutable, but nevertheless grand and big enough to be worthy of respect. Pay attention to this here. I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, I'm going to one day sit back, be in awe, and discover. He's a whole lot bigger and more incomprehensible than anything any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. Two observations here on some of those comments, if you got the gist of them. Man, if he would only take the time to read some of this stuff firsthand. You know, many like Dawkins have only been introduced, maybe you're among them, only been introduced to Jesus secondhand through, through platitudes, through caricatures, sometimes accurate, sometimes not. Few have learned the cosmic Christ, the master of the universe, as we see here in Colossians, firsthand. Listen to this, he calls Christianity parochial. The dictionary, I would say the... Oxford Dictionary, but it's really a dictionary on my iPhone, my app. <laughs> it's called parochial, it's 
provincial, limited, narrow in scope. Narrow. Did you hear what we just read? By Him, all things are created. All things are created through Him, for Him. He's before all things. All things hold together through Jesus. And He calls it narrow. Because so few have encountered Jesus firsthand in these pages. Let's be sure we take them there. Let's be sure we take them there. We don't settle for plat- We don't settle for Jesus is the Savior of the world. You should really know Him. Let's take them here. You can do that, friends. Here's the other thing I observed from his comments. If you notice what he expects at the end of his life. It was subtle, but did you notice that he, he's going to be able to sit back and be in awe of discovering the divine being and plan? You hear that? He's going to, he's going to have the satisfaction in seeing this. Whereas the Bible describes the ending of a life without trust in Christ as utter, constant, and unflinching pain. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Jesus says. In other words, Dawkins assumes a happy ending without a new beginning. We don't have to possess a brilliant mind, friends, the brilliant mind of a scholar or even be an avowed atheist to relate to this. To assume a happy ending without a new beginning. Think about your life. Most of us hope for very simple, often undefined, vague, happy endings to things. We want each day to end well. We want our children to end up well. We want our marriages to end well when we look back over 50 plus years. We want both regular experiences and landmark occasions to end well. We want our eternal destinies finally to end well. I think like most of us, like Richard Dawkins, we just assume that we stand a pretty good chance of things just ending well. Things will turn out fine. Even though we are unwilling to make Jesus our beginning, which he is. He is the beginning, as the word says here. Ask yourself this question this morning. I want us to ask yourself this question. How might I make Christ the preeminent beginning in my life? I had to ask myself this question this week, and it was a hard question. How do I make Christ the preeminent beginning every arena in my life. Beginning of a new day, instead of seeking first my own benefit through a warm shower, through a coffee, through a run, through a favorite TV show, a newspaper, how can Christ be the preeminent beginning to my day? Beginning of a new job, instead of seeking first a good impression you make upon your boss, instead of seeking first working your way up the ladder, Instead of seeking first building relationships for selfish ends. Putting Christ at the preeminent beginning to your job. Beginning of a vacation. Beginning of a conversation with an old friend or with your spouse. With a new child, with a new place, with a new relationship, friendship, with a new church. How can I make Christ the beginning and finally your very life, your soul, your eternal destiny. How can I make Jesus the beginning so that it will end well for me? And all these things, friends, we can't get the rainbows, you can't get the happy endings without a new beginning. You can't do it. 
Are you willing to change? Habits, lifestyles begin new ways. Let me tell you, it is worth it. The reward is becoming an heir to the kingdom of the universe along with Him who is the beginning of all things. You get Christ. The new beginning is worth it. The pain, the momentary pain of giving up, the momentary pain of sacrifice is replaced by an all-consuming pleasure that is Jesus. It's worth it. I want to end by telling you Susan McCabe's story, a dear woman in our church. Oh, she's here this morning. Susan, are you out there? There you go. Susan was uh, wronged by some people, and it cost her. I asked Susan if I could share this. It cost her. But instead of taking it out on those people and pursuing justice, as was her right, I remember she called me up one day. We discussed what Jesus might do. And she really chose what Paul says. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this about lawsuits. But he ends saying, why not rather suffer wrong? For Jesus to be glorified, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's what she did. She humbled herself. She began with Jesus' way. Jesus himself. And the result was that God blessed that decision. She received new job opportunities, and more importantly, and grow in Christ and see Him in new ways. And what happened then is those same people further wronged her. And, and having initially chosen to sort of turn the other cheek and suffer as Christ did, she felt released to pursue action and justice on her life because her life on this island was threatened by these further actions. And, and of course she felt released because she first chose Christ. Saw the blessing in that and then pursued some justice, and the result was she was comforted by fellow believers in the church. She cried out to Christ, and God blessed that decision also. Beginning with Jesus, though, doesn't make you immune to trouble, to circumstances. And in fact, last Sunday, Susan began, began with Jesus. Choosing to wake up early and drive over here to help with hospitality ministry and setting up some coffee and other things. And on her way here, she got into a crash on her motorbike. Hit her head on the pavement. Her helmet came off, but remarkably resulted in barely a small scratch. Her dress, which she said she might wear today. I don't know, are you? No, not wearing today. I mean, not completely intact. A woman who prayed for her immediately, well, she started to immediately pray as soon as she saw the accident happening. God blessed her with someone to pray for her as soon as they saw it happening. She's here. Came to, she came to help with hospitality this morning. These happy endings each had Christ as their beginning. At the beginning of her decisions, her struggles, her Sunday morning, they had Christ at the beginning. This doesn't mean that by making Christ well, our beginning, we'll find health, wealth, and a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, friends. But at the end of the rainbow, we'll find a Savior find a Savior who longs to say, well done. Or, at the end of the day, you'll be left only with yourself, always vaguely hoping that things will end well. Let's pray. Abba, Father, it is a pleasure to get into your Word. I love it, Lord. I pray that we grow to love it more because we are learning about you, Jesus, the 
master of the universe, the creator of the cosmos. You are so big, Jesus. Before we run to quick fixes in our life, help us run to you because you are powerful enough to do something about it. And frankly, Jesus, you are our beginning. You were willing to take on death. You took charge of this property of hell upon yourself that we might be heirs and have life forever. So Jesus, just as you are beginning, the beginning, Jesus, would you teach us? Would you teach us how to make you the preeminent beginning of each area of our life? But help us not walk away from here just being really honest with ourselves of where does that need to happen? Where does Christ need to infiltrate an area of my life and be first? It may not be giving up something, Lord. It just might be glorifying you in it, including you in it, sharing you in it. We give thanks and praise to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.